Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are very lucky, excited to be joined by British Behuria, who's a lecturer in politics, governance, and development at the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute. He's a political economist researching the politics of economic transformation, and he's also the co-convener of the Politics and Political Economy Study Group at the Development Studies Association. Welcome to the, the show, British. Thanks, Lev. Uh, real pleasure to be here and uh, on your excellent podcast and be a part of it. Today, we have an exciting show. We're going to be talking about a new, a new paradigm, uh, perhaps. <laughs> We're going to talk about whether it is a new paradigm <laughs> in development economics called global development. And you've written that since the 08 crisis, academics and practitioners who are working in the field of development have really been looking for a, a new development paradigm. And maybe what we could do is you could start by talking about, I mean, I have an idea, but maybe you could get into the details about why there's this, this need, this desire after 08 to find a new paradigm. And then perhaps you could make the case for this new paradigm, which is called global development. Thanks, Lev. So I guess uh, this is an important question. So a lot of, if we start with the post-war, the newly independent countries coming into being, the question of how late development will be pursued around the globe. In the post-war years, the dominant economics paradigm was largely speaking a Keynesian one. And for, for Keynes and others, early, other early development economists like Arthur Lewis, like Hirschman, for example, I actually sit in the Arthur Lewis building here in Manchester and Arthur Lewis was won the Nobel Prize and he was the first black economics professor in, in the UK as well. And his, the, at that time, the way we viewed economics was through interdisciplinarity. It was through seeing political economy at the center of economics. And it was through viewing two different kinds of economics. That is not a mono-economics that was representative of the entire world, but a kind of dual economics. This dual economics separation of developing and developed countries was relevant for two reasons. One is that late development or the object, the challenge of structural transformation for developing countries which were largely dependent, dependent on producing a few things like coffee, tea, oil, et cetera, uh, needed to diversify their economies. And the situation for most countries who are primary commodity dependent or don't produce that much is that they are balance of payment constrained, meaning that they don't export enough and therefore they don't have access into enough foreign exchange to fund their imports, right? So they're always importing more than they export and therefore they don't have enough foreign exchange and therefore you need aid to kind of fill that gap and also that when Keynes would write about full employment in industrialized countries the argument was that there would be under or unemployment naturally in developing countries because there isn't enough uh, diversification and sources of employment in the country so the Keynesian paradigm was what was dominant and that was how development studies more generally was viewed because economics always offer, occupies a kind of primacy within development studies as a kind of self-anointed king of the social science. Now in the 1970s, a kind of count uh, anomaly started to arise. That is the state-led development policies of import substitution industrialization of the focus of seeing development primarily as diversifying your economies of promoting structural transformation didn't seem to be playing out that well in most countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. 
So the World Bank and the IMF then pushed, saw this as an opportunity to promote a new kind of economic thinking, a market-led paradigm known as the Washington Consensus, closely associated what we see as neoliberalism, etc. But also promoting a kind of mono-economics that basically this view of and this view of uh, a separation between one economics for developing countries and one economics for industrialized countries was not relevant, and we should basically treat mono I mean, all economies in the same way. And uh, treating all economies in the same way was founded on seeing the market as a as the ultimate allocator of exchange and resources, and giving market more power over what was rather than production. Right. So earlier focus was on production, and this was seen as market having authority in terms of in terms of being the source of exchange and leading to mutual benefits in terms of the allocation of resources. Now this remained dominant and arguably is still dominant. But then a new countercurrent started rising around the 1990s. That is, East Asia started growing rapidly, Japan, Korea, Taiwan in particular. So you had these countries catching up. So then there was a fight over how do you analyze this East Asian rise? And the World Bank did this through their 1993 report, arguing that this happened because East Asia did use state intervention, but they did it to largely promote market-led reforms like privatization, et cetera, but also more generally of export-oriented development. There was a counter argument from Alice Hampson, Robert Wade, and others who did inductive studies historically of how Korea and Taiwan developed. And they focused on how state intervention was the driving force and actually the importance of import substitution and creating the possibilities for exports that followed late, mutually and then later. British, can I interrupt for just a sec? Sure. Maybe you could clear up what import substitution industrialization is, why a country might pursue that that path. And then you said it, it didn't play out particularly well, you know, by the 19, late 1970s. So what happened? Okay, thanks so much. So import substitution industrialization is the easiest way to picture this is imagine that you, as a country, you're importing, a, you're importing a lot of cement and then you produce, you start producing that cement. So you're substituting the imports and then you're trying to diversify through often linkages around that product, right? So from cement, you'll start producing cement bags, etc. So that those are backward linkages and forward linkages would be in terms of producing products associated like um, in construction, like steel, et cetera, as well. And that would be a basic way of thinking about import substitution industrialization. Now, the record really is that the view was that there was a lot of corruption associated with import substitution industrialization because import substitution industrialization required the protection of a certain sector, right? So you're giving an advantage to a certain sector and Anne Kruger and others said that this distortion of the market by creating, by protecting the sector was leading to wastage. And it's true, and we, there was wastage in many places, right? But now looking back, uh, when you look at the growth rates on average, which is never the best uh, indicator, this, Alice Amazon argues, was really the golden age of development 
where growth was really rising faster compared to the decades that followed. I see. And so this is the path that the so-called Asian tigers or East Asian countries that were developing very rapidly in the 1990s, this is the path that they were also pursuing, although that, that wasn't what the World Bank was saying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wasn't solely import substitution industrialization because they did begin to export very strategically to, mar- uh, to global markets and become became hugely competitive. Of course, at that time, there were large Korean uh, conglomerates like Hyundai and Samsung today that were even associated with large corruption scandals then and continue to be now, but they did contribute to transforming the economies dramatically. Same to be said about Taiwan with Foxconn and others. Okay, let's continue the story. So you've got this pushback against the Washington consensus and some some real life examples of countries which develop without abiding by or sticking so closely to the Washington rules. And what happens after the 90s? What happens after we see evidence of this, this kind of development? So you have this battle between the old structures, which were closely... I would say a bit shaped or influenced by Keynesian and early development economics, and that is our, uh, Robert Wade, Al Samson, etc., studying uh, Korea and Taiwan from a single case perspective and historically in an interdisciplinary way. And we had the World Bank focusing on the market-led con- determinants of East Asian success. So this battle was being fought. It was largely, I would say, continued to be won by the World Bank and others. But at the same time, there was another important dynamic taking place within broader development studies and broader global development institutions. And that was the influence of Amartya Sen's capability approach, the focus on seeing development as beyond growth, which was the main focus of the Washington Consensus but basically adding health and education to it. And this is best best shown through the example of the human development indicators, which is a multi-dimensional index, which is based on three things, economic growth, health, and which is basically on one indicator, life expectancy, and education, which is largely based on um, years of schooling. So this was about seeing development in a broader way, so growth plus health and education. Now, what we what you also had at this time was, uh, in many Anglo-American departments at least, you saw eco- economics retain the primacy, that is neoclassical economics re- retaining a primacy in terms of authority uh, within the social sciences, but you also saw an entry point for politics, for anthropology, etc., to analyze the social within development, but expect, accept the dominance of neoclassical economics as the source of all evidence in terms of economics. So this kind of pluralism within economics reduced, the space for that reduced dramatically. So now we, in the 1990s and 2000s, we had a slight tilt away. There are lots of debates about whether this was a paradigm shift from neoliberalism and the Washington Consensus or not. But there was also a dominance of the new institutional economics paradigm. This was pushed by Douglas North and others. In contrast to Washington Consensus, which argued that markets work perfectly in all countries, basically the argument was that 
uh, from North and others was that the state needed to be brought back in, but it needed to be brought back in to fix market imperfections and create the right institutions. And the right institutions were all formal institutions supporting markets to work better and to allocate resources in a more efficient way. These resources were usually things like democracy, transparency, et cetera, uh, secure property rights, et cetera. So these were very, this is best envisioned now today when a lot of the development policies are about supporting entrepreneurship supply side kind of policies and creating the right business environment rather than continuing to ignore the space of production and transformation and the importance of diversifying your economy. Now, after the financial crisis, there was another new anomaly that needed to be explained. Of course, it had been coming for a while, but the rise of China and China's rapid growth experience, also because of the faltering and the slight um, shake up and to the Western economies in particular uh, in North America and Europe, you, there was some argument that there was more convergence. There was also a reaction at the international financial institutions level where the World Bank and uh, the UN were coming to an end of their millennium development goals, which had largely laid out six targets, which were supposed to be pushed on developing countries, which were around growth and health and education and poverty reduction more generally. And there was the rise of the Sustainable Development Goals Agenda. The Sustainable Development Goals Agenda started with the idea that development is a global process. So every country needs to be involved. This is because, of course, the important and urgent need to address issues uh, and the dangers around climate change, right? So this is a very noble goal in many ways. It's it when it was institutionalized, uh, the sustainable development goals at the UN, it opened up to all countries around the world. In many ways, Sakiko, Sakiko Fukuda, et cetera, argue that uh, this was a much more inclusive process, but what you ended up having really was that there were now 17 goals and 169 targets with all targets to be measured through quantifiable indicators. Many of these goals and indicators are conflicting with one another, and this has been criticized in many ways, right? But this kind of language of global development, in some ways you can see it as a huge paradigm shift in the sense that now we're thinking collectively of how to address development challenges. In some ways, in other ways, you can think about it as a concentration of a particular line of thinking, which had already begun to see economics, uh, starting with the Washington Consensus, as a kind of universally understood problem where the structure of the economies is less relevant. And this could be seen more critically as a consolidation of that program, which not only extends to economics, but beyond economics into the other social sciences. So that's the more critical outlook, of course. So that's where we are. This, this new global development paradigm is being contested. And I can talk a little bit more about that as well, but uh, it is still in its infancy and the words global and development still mean so many different things to so many people. So it is still a battle to kind of persuade what this actually will, will entail. I mean, one of the things that struck me about your work is that you seem to be stressing, and I'd like you to talk more about this, why this is important, the importance of 
political economy, and I, I know you are a political economist, over economics. So what is this fight about and why, why do you stress the importance of political economy? Yeah, thanks so much. It's a, it's a very important question in a way. Of course, political economy was, uh, at least from an Anglo-European perspective, the original social science. Political economy being understood as an, an interdisciplinary way to look at the problems associated, usually understood to be associated with economics. That is history, philosophy, politics to be central to that. The challenge about seeing economics purely in terms of a narrow disciplinary way is it becomes inevitably um, a technical kind of solution. And this is aligned with seeing the kind of, seeing economics as a kind of science. Seeing economics as a science means that there's one dominant way of looking at things and that there aren't countercurrents to viewing the economy. That basically argues that there's one dominant paradigm of economics and everyone is looking through and understanding this through the same worldview, the same assumptions about how the world works, about the role of the market, about the role of things like equilibrium, et cetera. And that, because economics, so those who understand economics as a social science and see economics as central to a kind of pluralist outlook, see it quite differently, see that economic challenges perhaps don't travel differently everywhere, that the politics and the social has a relevance for whether your technical solutions may work in other places. Now, the challenge with holding the universal economics view of having one economics is that a lot of this is also based on how a certain conception of how the West developed, which may not be exactly correct. And arguing that that, because of the place of Anglo-European education, it means that every country should follow our dominant understandings of the problems, say in the US, everywhere, uh, rather than ignoring the centrality of the historical, the political and the social elements of why some policies may work and may not. A lot of this, is a fight over over history and in particular how the wealthy northern countries got their capital in the first place is that is that right yeah yeah you're right of course colonialism is a huge elephant in the room and all this and you see it always right that if you the objective of seeing economics in a purely technical way kind of erases history and erases how the wealthy countries became wealthy. And why is it that other countries are in a structurally weaker position? Why is it that developing countries are vulnerable economically? Why is it that they don't produce enough? It's because in many countries, it was true that there were industrial sectors before colonialism, say in India, in parts of Africa, and all around the world, really. Uh, but colonialism reduced the space for that. I mean, that was generally done universally. And we saw as newly countries were becoming independent after the 1950s, that countries were producing very few things. And that left them in a very vulnerable position in the global economy. And that was the central fe feature of a lot of the structuralist thinking after the 1950s and 1960s. And that usually came actually from the South, from Raoul Krebish, from others, that how do you de deal with this challenge of diversifying your economy in order to be less vulnerable to the hierarchies within the global economy? 
We can see it now, right, with COVID. And we can see that there will be differential experiences across the world. Some commodities may be in more, more demand and those countries may be okay. But other countries, say many countries have followed services-based strategies, hugely dependent on tourism. And their economies have been left completely devoid of any sources of foreign exchange. Um, Another way to think about it is this is also a fight over specializing, listening to David Ricardo, or diversifying. Is that another way to think about it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that, the most basic way of most basic thinking around comparative advantage has formed a central focus of all neoclassical economics thinking for quite a while now. And I would say that there's quite a bit of uh, reaction against that, even from within neoclassical economics, especially over the last 10 years. But the solutions, the way to diversify, it's still contested. So Justin then, about a decade ago, came up with his new structural economics. And, but the kind of industrial policy, the kind of pathway policies needed to diversify your economies, uh, industrial policy doesn't have to be just about promoting manufacturing, but on, can also be to higher value added agriculture, but any kind of diversification really was in market conforming industrial policy. So he was very much against the kind of big risks or big shifts in terms of protecting sectors, protecting firms. And the traditional developmentalists or structuralist scholars who focus on specific aspects of Korea's story, like in terms of steel with the growth of POSCO which was very far from the country's comparative advantage, focused on things like perhaps picking winners, picking sectors a bit more. So there are still substantial uh, differences in terms of what, even in the few scholars that are focusing on industrial policy and diversification, there is quite a substantial difference in the policy solutions they're proposing. The last question, but it's, it's sort of a big question. You talk about you know, one of the problems in the in the narrative of this new paradigm is something called converging divergence. And you say that it doesn't really it doesn't really tell an accurate story. So maybe talk a little bit about what that story is, why it's inaccurate. And I think in order to do that, let me ask you a question. I another question. I read often this this website called Our World in Data, but the case that the website seems to be making is Poor countries, global South countries are much, much wealthier than they've ever been. You know, and I think Gates funds this uh, website, but the, the program since the 90s has been very successful. And I guess just empirically, you know, is that true? And then how does that relate to this conversation about converging divergence? Within the broader uh, conception of global development at the UN, et cetera, as, as soon as these terms were thrown out, global development, and it became trendy, uh, there was an opportunity for, I would say, academics and practitioners to say, okay, what does this term actually mean? And uh, of course, when you're trying to universalize development, there's a question of trying to give these words a meaning, a kind of basis for being pushed. And the, there was this uh, paper, a, a forum in development and change, which talked about, which used, which used the space, uh, which wrote an article basically to 
make the case for global development. And it did this by looking at traditional global North countries versus global South countries and looking at on average their performance in terms of growth, health and education. And they found that there was convergence between 1990 and 2015 on the basis of growth, health and education. And what are the implications of that? Now, there were other uh, papers at that time by Andrew Fisher, Andy Sumner, Jati Ghosh and others who criticized this paper quite widely. Because when you're looking at growth, health and education, you're basically saying on these broad mainstream indicators proposed by the World Bank and the UN, you are seeing convergence because that's kind of where policies have been based. But also you're basically, the time period you're choosing is basically neoliberalism, right? It's the era of market-led reform. So you are effectively condoning neoliberalism. But also at one level, the human development indicators you choose on health and education, what represents health is life expectancy which has very little to do with kind of health reforms in particular. A lot of this is about demography and education is just years of schooling, not quality of education or anything like that. Now, the problem really is this again, ignores what the old historical way of thinking about development. That is the structural vulnerabilities of the economy. This is what, how countries used to be considered developed or not on the basis of what they produce rather than the growth and health and education. So in that way, it's a kind of misdirection. Uh, and also partially because, of course, once you include China, all the indicators swing into its convergence. Uh, this is not the broad story in most countries around the world. And that is a problem with using these broader categories more generally. So converging divergence, effectively, it refers to Sorry, it suggests that there is increasing convergence between the North and South, while there is increasing evidence of sustained within country inequalities on the basis of growth, health, and education. Now, I think a lot of the critics of this kind of argument focus on three particular aspects, just to name a few. Firstly, China, the presence of China as without waiting uh, within the global south skews the argument in a, towards convergence when there's actually big time divergence. Second, the choice of indicators represent a kind of mainstream thinking about development and ignore the role of production and economic structures and historical dependency in terms of what you produce. And third, it broadly speaking at this current moment to talk about diverge a, con a convergence at this moment between countries is quite out of step with reality and this is the centrality of why we need to think about what we produce as mattering now if we think about the um, the current challenges in terms of vaccine distribution or the global vaccine apartheid as, a, as you would like to call it we see in the west in, in the, at least in Europe and America, life it may be returning back to normal. And many people are being vaccinated, increasingly, increasing amounts of people, right? But of course, in other countries around the world, barely anyone has been vaccinated. The threat of the pandemic looms large and vaccine distribution has just not reached anywhere near the scales in the West. 
and that shows the continued dependency between, in, uh, from other parts of the world on the West in particular. I think right now to talk about convergence, it really is focusing on kind of average indicators of income on health and education. It's not really showing us about, telling us anything about the relevance of the structure of the economies and why countries are still poor, right? And the structure's perspective is largely because, it largely focuses on this aspect and about what, produ what you produce it mattering in terms of this is the security of your economy and the vulnerabilities within the global economy.